Hi, it's G3, and today we are going to be talking about relativity. Not in an Einstein way, but in a market context. Because the price of an asset, whether it's a stock or a bond or a barrel of oil, tells a much different story about market conditions when that price is compared to another asset or a moment in time. With me today to discuss this is Weiss's Jordi Visser, the firm's president and CIO. So please check out important disclosures at the end of the episode and get ready for this one. You could also give us a rating if you'd like. And with that, welcome. Okay, we are recording. Jordi, how are you feeling? <laughs> This doesn't happen to me often, but I'm feeling better each day recovering from COVID. Feeling better each day recovering from COVID. You look good, but let me ask you a more important question than how you look. How did you sleep? <laughs> well, as you know, this is uh, the single driving factor in my own brain for performance. And I've spent so much time on trying to make sure that I get a high sleep score on my aura ring. But I will tell you, when you're in COVID and even recovering, it is very challenging to get your sleep score back up. So my sleep score has finally, after I guess this is day 10, has finally got back to what I would consider to be normal in terms of the score. The readiness score, how ready I am for the day, what my body did overnight is still not back to normal and that it's been down at low levels for the last 10 days. So, Okay. So you're on the road to recovery. We're going to talk a lot more about the importance of a sleep score, but let me just be clear here because given the continued volatility in the markets, I just want to make sure of one thing. Your sleep score is good enough to proceed today, correct? <laughs> yes, it is good enough to proceed. I, I will be able to think clearly. I will be able to make some coherent thoughts, and hopefully there's some insights that come out. Excellent, because I'm sure just about everybody listening to this realizes the markets have been incredibly volatile. Everybody has a sore neck. And listening to the morning meeting each day, I have taken great note of what you are saying and what you are not saying. And one of the things that you have emphasized repeatedly is the importance of watching relative performance. This is a very important marble. Can you just give a overview as to why you and the firm put so much emphasis on the value of relative performance? And if you could just maybe elaborate on what we mean by relative performance as well. First of all, just in terms of a definition, relative performance is just simplistically looking at some data relative to another data. The simplest example is just when people say the dollar is weakening, that's not enough of a statement. The dollar is, is it relative to the Chinese yuan, relative to the euro, relative to the Canadian dollar? There's a bunch of relative 
performance metrics with inside the currency markets, they're all relative. In terms of the equity markets, we're talking about technology relative to energy. And probably the one that is the most important is just the bond market relative to the stock market. So we care about relative at Weiss because A, we're a hedged fund. So when you're a hedged fund, by definition, you're picking longs relative to shorts and you're thinking your longs are going to outperform your shorts. So that's the first thing. All of the kind of analytics that we do internally, they're all market neutral or factor neutral, which again is a relative thing, just like a hedge fund. And I grew up in derivatives and that's the first place you learn to hedge. So relative has been a part of my thinking since the day I entered the industry in the early 90s. I would say it might even be more than part of your thinking. It is a primary frame through which you view the markets each day. Isn't it? I mean, just given the fact that, as you said, Weiss is a market neutral fund, correct? Yes. And we'll go deeper into this because I think the reason we decided to do a podcast on relative is because all human beings spend their time in a relative nature. Everything is relative to something. And I think we get caught in absolute terms. Markets going higher, bonds are going down, whatever the case is, but that's not the way things work. And some of the most important signals that I've learned over the years are on a relative basis. And almost every single chart that I do begins with a concept of relative. The absolute charts are just not as important. They become important after you've had turns but generally turns in markets, and since we're going to spend some time on what we're seeing that could possibly look like the potential for a turn, everyone cares about turns. And turns to me have always been where I've spent my time, which means by definition, I'm usually early into trends, which means for a period of time, you're going to be wrong as you're trying to catch it. And so far this year, I've been looking for a turn in the market probably since Probably late April, early May is when I started to get the sense that we had done enough and that we should be expecting a turn. And so now we're in this point where at turns, relative becomes extremely important. All right. Well, we're going to get into all of that. But just to set the stage here, let me just ask you a couple of basic questions. Has this emphasis on relative signals, has it always been a mainstay of this firm or as the markets have evolved over time, has it become more important? I think it depends on, honestly, who you speak with in terms of how important it's been or what goes on. I'm not sure a lot of people even fully grasp that they're doing relative in their head all the time. And I'll just give you an example. I, people don't have a, a choice. The human brain, which we all have, is a pattern recognition machine. And by definition, a pattern recognition, you're comparing what you're seeing now to some other pattern that you recognize. And that means by definition, every single thing that we're doing is looking for a pattern. Even if it's an absolute chart, you'll hear things like, well, that's a cup and handle, that's a hammer or a doji. Those are all patterns that have happened in the past that are meant to signal something or our brains do that. And I think the more that you spend time looking at relative charts that maybe other people aren't looking at, I see it as an edge. And so I've built so many relative charts. And I know a lot of the portfolio managers here, when I walk by their desk, they don't have a chart of their sector up. They have a chart of their sector relative to the S&P. And they're looking to see when there's going to be demand. Because at the end of the day, if they were to buy the transportation sector, they have to short something against it. And so what does it matter if it's going up? You want to see what it's going up relative to another sector. 
One of the things that I have always found fascinating about how you use relative signals is your ability to connect dots between variables that may not be so obvious. I mean, sure, you make reference to growth versus value or the dollar versus oil, but you also make connections between variables that are maybe not as intuitively connected. Are these kinds of pairings things that you have sort of devised yourself or is there sort of a a basic framework that you pull from where you know a bunch of different relationships currently give you some measure of indication? It's the final thing you said in terms of a current indication of things that gets important. But to start out with, Malcolm Gladwell's written a, a lot of books that make you think, but one of the books he wrote about that I think fits this general topic is Blink. And there's a psychological phrase which he references in there called thin slicing. And thin slicing at the end of the day ends up being something where you're finding patterns in events and it's based on thin slices or small amounts of data points and your gut reaction or you're already coming to a conclusion to be in that situation, you need more experiences. And this is one of the reason that if you try to figure out how a market is turning, sitting in a dark room, not looking at charts, how are you going to get any experiences to figure out when things are going to shift? And so what I try to do is combine the thing that I talk about all the time, which is the narratives that I'm hearing. So in the past, I guess, month, I've been to one dinner and one lunch, which believe it or not, is two more than I had been to in the past six months. <laughs> I normally don't go out to these just because I feel that I've gauged a lot of the sentiment that's out there just from listening to my own portfolio managers, but also from the bit of reading I do on the markets. But I want to understand the narrative because when the narrative is at an extreme and everyone seems to be in the same thing and they've lost hope of any other narrative, that's when the signals become most important to me. And so for thin slicing, collecting small amounts of things, these experiences of going out, I think combined on the dinner and lunch, there was probably 25 market people there. And so I'll get a good enough sampling of, okay, what is everyone talking about? Okay, they're all talking about inflation. Great. Okay, they're all talking about the Fed and how the Fed is committed to fighting inflation at any cost, including asset prices going lower. And then I'll throw something out there and see what their relative reaction is to it. And in particular, I think at the lunch, which was the most recent, I left with what I would consider a nugget or a marble of just, oh, people don't seem to realize that when stocks and bonds are down this much, this is not just hurting the wealthy in the country. This is hurting every American at this point. And it comes at a time when gas prices are going higher, which hurts the bottom end more than the top end. So you kind of have hit everyone in the country over the course of the last two months. And yet people are still worried about inflation and the Fed, and they're not bringing into the fact that growth is probably going to slow fairly significantly. And I did a webinar on this. I guess it's now, it was before COVID. So it's probably 13 days ago or something where I talked about the fact before that, your COVID. Yes. Before my COVID. Right. Okay. Yeah, not, not pre COVID. <laughs> I think that's kind of where you start to put all this together. And so my brain is like, all right, we've gotten to extreme. Nothing that's happened this year has surprised me in any way outside of the fact that I didn't expect the Fed to go so aggressively. So the most important thing to me is that if the Fed were to kind of 
have already built in everything that's there and they don't need to jawbone and say, we want asset prices lower. I just wrote a paper, which will go out probably before this podcast, where I specifically referenced former New York Fed Governor Bill Dudley specifically saying he wants stocks to go lower and they're happy about it. Or that the Fed wants stocks to go lower. The Fed wants stocks to go lower. And again, that's all well and good, but there's a majority of Americans that own stocks. And so retirees and people's at a time when inflation is going higher and already causing problems, getting you worried that it's going to continue and that your wages can't cover your regular cost. And you knock down asset prices and consumer net worth by over ten trillion. I estimate it to be about thirteen trillion at the lows. You're going to see an impact, and so at this point, I care a lot about the relative data points. And just to make it easy on people, because there's a phrase that we all use at some point in our lives, which are okay. Yeah, I saw there were some red flags that were were popping up. Well, red flags at the end of the day to me are relative data points. They're things that are different than what you expected, and so. Those are like thin slicing. You do it every day. You do it when you're dating someone. You do it when you're at a job. You're doing it with the market. And right now, I'm seeing a lot of relative charts that are telling me that there's some changes that are happening from what have been going on the first six months. But to encapsulate it and tell me if this is a good way to think about it, thin slicing as it relates to the markets is sort of a form of laziness, right? The yield curve goes negative. Therefore, a recession is coming soon after, because in the past, there are a couple of occasions where you can point to that. And so it's easy to just get on TV and say, we're heading for another recession because the yield curve has done it again. Would that be an example? I'd call that jumping to a conclusion <laughs> and having a really bad algorithm of of the the visual that I always use. And this is where marbles comes up is I think of a mosaic in the market. And when you mentioned, which I, I didn't really reference enough, at various times in the market, certain marbles are important, meaning certain relative data points. When you have inflation fears and you have a Fed raising rates in a manner that has surprised the market, that can really only be compared to for inflation in the 1970s and for the Fed surprising 1994. Those are the two areas that you have as data points. Other than that, you don't have any. And so right now I want to watch and see, okay, if inflation is worried to stay high and interest rates in the Fed are aggressive, expensive tech names should underperform because that's historically what's happened. And that's why the market is actually doing what it should do at this point. The question right now is, are those signals changing? And if we're going to go into a period where I think it's going to be less about inflation fears and more about growth fears, what data points would start showing up to me. And those are the ones that are starting to light up differently, meaning we're transitioning away from a mosaic where inflation was the important thing. That's already discounted. Now we're starting to shift to one where the growth phase is more important. So would it be fair to say that it's not that signal indicators, relative signal indicators decay over time. It's just that they become more or less important based upon the macro conditions. Yeah. At the end of the day, markets, just like in paramutual betting, are determined in terms of the movements by individuals. And individuals, you want to hear the narratives to hear what they're saying. You want to see where their surprises are. I think the Fed has surprised the market. And the surprise from now, when we got to 2.9%, the expectations for where the Fed funds rate would be at the December meeting this year, I think that that was the highest we'll see this year. And I think from that point, we will continue to see a Fed that is less aggressive than what we expected as of two weeks ago. And that's a dramatic change than what we've been in since December of last year, six months ago. Can you give our listeners any other relative signal indicators that you are 
paying close attention to now and maybe explain why? Well, let's go through and break this down into the pieces that were happening or going on really since December. So beginning in December, and I use December because that's when the Fed abandoned transitory completely in their first Fed meeting and basically took it out of the language. It's when we started the rate hike significant movements, meaning from that point, each time the Fed was jawboning, the White House spoke out in January. So the dollar was strengthening which is never a good thing for markets just because of how much global debt exists that's priced in dollars. So when the dollar is generally strengthening, particularly at a fast pace, it's usually a time where markets are worried. And and to be clear, the dollar strengthening against what? In this case, it was strengthening against almost everything. There were very few that it wasn't, but primarily the European currencies and even for the most part, the Chinese yuan, the Asian currencies. So let's just say Asian, European currencies, some emerging markets were doing fine, but overall the dollar was strengthening. Second thing is we had rates moving higher across the curve. So forget the curve flattening, which happened briefly on twos tens. We had a scenario that all rates were moving higher and it was really happening at a very sharp pace. Credit spreads were widening and it wasn't just credit spreads. Mortgage rates and mortgage spreads were widening. Muni spreads were widening and we saw munis going down, bonds moving down. At the same time, stocks were going down led by technology. And in particular, we were seeing significant weakness in all the overvalued names that were probably the most beneficial from both COVID in terms of people staying at home, but also from the liquidity surge that came into people who were sitting at home and for lack of a better word, gambling. And so all of the excess places, the IPOs, all that stuff went down. So that has gone on since December. And now what we've seen shift, the dollar in the last two weeks has weakened and it's weakened against pretty much everything. At the same time, we've seen rates peak and as of yesterday, we finally had the 25-day rate of change. So take the where we were 25 days ago in two-year rates, we finally went negative. So two-year rates as of yesterday's close were lower than they were 25 days before. Now that may sound like something that happens often. It hadn't happened since September, meaning since September, we had been in this positive rate of change, which means no matter when you look back, rates were higher 25 days later. This is the first time that that's gone on. Over the last five days, including today, munis defined, and the easiest way to look at it is look at MUB, which is an ETF on the munis. It's up five days in a row, and I think the overall percent move is about two and a half, which makes it the largest rally for five days going back to the COVID lows. Munis are always a signal for me of retail being willing to jump back into the market. Munis are probably the highest credit rating of people to jump back into something. And so I look for munis as a place that, hey, we're willing to step back into bonds. So recent muni performance relative to muni performance over the last several months it is looking stronger now than it was. Yeah, it broke the 20-day moving average. More importantly, the five-day rate of changes. You've made two and a half percent-ish if you got in uh, five days ago and have held now. And that may not seem like a lot, but it's the highest five-day move since back in, I think, April of 20 or March of 20. But it was right around the lows. And so we had a buyer strike going on in fixed income. And all of a sudden now we have that shifting. The equity market is showing signs of exhaustion. And what I look for for exhaustion in equities is that as we're making new lows, 
it's not with as much energy. This is a horse racing thing that I do all the time. When I'm looking visually at horses, I'm looking for energy bursts. How quickly can they go from kind of a jog to a sprint very quickly? That becomes very important for both positioning, but also to get an see how the engine of it is. So when the stock market has been oversold and sentiment is at these levels, which we've been in for probably two months now, I want to see some signs that as we're making new lows, there's divergences. And the divergences in this case are the power of the mood, meaning, okay, are we able to, once we go down, not go down as fast as we did? We're starting to see divergences in RSIs, which are some technical levels, new lows in the marketplace. As we've made new lows overall for the indices, the amount of names inside the index for both the NASDAQ and the NYSE, the five-day average of new 52-week lows is a lot less than it was in April. So as we're going to new lows, there's less names that are driving that index lower. So we're getting a lot of different signs that we're running out of energy. Now, that's doesn't mean that we're going back to all-time highs, which I think we are, but that doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form people listening should believe that. That just means at this stage, we've probably done enough on the downside and we've seen a shift. The last thing I'll put on, and then you can kind of break down each of the pieces, is not just the market, but it's the growth side. And for that, I've talked about inflation peaking. I wanted to see that. The economic data is now on a relative basis weakening fairly significantly for what I care. Again, the ism is the number one thing for me. And we've had the regional isms or PMIs come out for New York, for Philly and for Richmond yesterday. All of them are sending the same signal, which is there is a real risk that the headline national index for the ism could be below 50, which is a very sharp decline from where it was. And we're getting more and more signs from companies that inventories are high and that the consumer has absolutely pulled back as asset prices have gone down. So I think we're in a shift now away from inflation and one to where growth is more scary. And that should, I assume, pull the Fed back from being as jawboning as they've been. And as you have said recently, and I'd like you to elaborate on it, at this point in the cycle, bad news is good news, right? So this is where when you start to see assets do fine. So yesterday, Snap was down 40, over 40% for the day. Now, when this type of stuff was happening in April and even early May, the markets would either close on the lows or we'd get this horrible thing. Yesterday, Snap was horrible. You saw all of those tech names and the innovation names, particularly like Arc, down significantly. And... The low in the S&P yesterday occurred before 11 o'clock and the highs of the day occurred after 3.30. When you're starting to get in a turn in the market and you're getting out of what I would consider a bear market phase, you want to be in a position where the lows are made early in the day and the highs are made late in the day. That means you've just, again, exhausted selling and we're starting to see the market do better on bad news and on economic data that is weaker it's starting to do better as well. So so if the nationalism does come below 50, your view is given the market's concern over the Fed's aggressiveness that even though that would indicate weakness in the economy, by and large, the markets would breathe a sigh of relief because it'll conclude, oh, maybe the Fed won't have to be as aggressive because clearly they've done a lot of work in slowing the economy. Mid-cycle slowdowns are 
the definition of needing after a bunch of juicing of the economy coming out of a recession, you need things to pull back. And a mid-cycle slowdown is what I think we're in. And I've said it repeatedly on here. I have no signs at this point of a recession coming. Inflation has been high and it's for a variety of different reasons because I believe it's peaked, but now because we're hearing from the Walmarts and the Targets and the Dick stores and all of these different places that inventory levels are extremely high at a time when demand is pulling back. The Fed has said they want asset prices to go down. Well, we saw it go down. I don't think this is anything more than something that needed to happen and arguably should have happened last year. The paper that I'm writing now has an excerpt that I wrote in March of last year. So more than a year ago saying the Fed is going to be behind the curve. They're underestimating GDP and inflation. And when they finally have to exit this, risk premium is going to rise and credit spreads are going to widen because bond volatility uncertainty is going to go up. That was in March of last year. And that's why I'm not concerned with what's happening because I think the Fed made a mistake last year not doing this sooner. But the end result is, is the economy structurally fine and Three-month rates are still way below where nominal GDP is and inflation is coming down. So I'm actually believing that we're going to get a better second half of the year where if growth doesn't come in as a recession, this whole slowdown feature, which I think will last for the better part of the summertime, is going to be viewed as a positive, not a negative. All right. And, and that paper will be out by the time this podcast is published. But they could also check out your Twitter handle, right, to get your thoughts as it relates to what's going on in the markets now as well, right? Yeah, I'm trying to make sure that each morning, whatever I see as kind of the most important marbles, particularly at times of turns, and I think as people get more used to hearing this podcast and getting to know me, but also thinking about what I'm doing in the webinars and what I'm writing about, I'm really looking for the probabilities of things that are against the narratives in the market. When I'm involved in something where the narrative is there, I'm just never comfortable because narratives matching up with what I'm saying means I'm either betting on the favorite at this point, which usually has a lot of room for error, or the best way to say it is it doesn't have a good risk reward. Right now, I think the most important point for people is I think we're at a turn. The market is starting to show more signs. We don't have confirmation yet. I'm looking for the S&P to close above the 20-day moving average. I'm looking for the S&P to get back up towards 4,100, to pause, to consolidate. The only way I see the S&P making a new high is on the back of China truly reopening and COVID no longer being a major force over there because China's adding to the global weakness. China's trying to stimulate. And then in all my years of watching them, the one thing they're lacking, they are shoving an enormous amount into the system, is animal spirits. And that's something else that we'll talk about in later dates. But animal spirits are critical to the global marketplace. And right now, the only stimulus going in that can cause animal spirits to come quickly is China. In the U.S., I think we're going to be in kind of a meandering economy for the foreseeable future. I think there's a long period of growth here as long as inflation comes under check because I think there's a lot of money in people's systems and there's unemployment rate that is near zero or is near 3% now and is going to remain there. But we need some sort of stimulus to get people out of this malaise. And I think it's got to come from China. Does the aura ring measure animal spirits? <laughs> the aura ring only <laughs> tells me in the morning how I did for sleep. And if you think about the one data point that you would like to know, 
because we all have some gauge. Hey, how do I feel this morning? Hey, can I do more push-ups than I could yesterday? The good thing about this, every day that I wake up, I've got all my vital signs telling me what I had. I knew I had COVID the second I woke up, or at least thought I did. And then when I saw my readiness score, my sleep score was so low and my temperature was two and a half degrees above normal. Without having to take my temperature, I realized at that point, okay, I probably have COVID and that was a day that I won't forget anytime soon. All righty. Well, I hope your vitals continue to get better. Thanks so much, Jordy. Lots of great info here. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.